you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. My pleasure to be joined by UCLA Infectious Disease Specialist and Assistant Clinical Professor at the Geffen School of Medicine, Dr. Paul Adamson. Dr. Adamson, so good to have you back with us today. Hey, good morning, Larry. Great to be here. Let's start with the good news of where we stand with COVID-19 and the Omicron variant. We continue on our decline. Um, what do you see as, as the length of this off-ramp? Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's really uh, very reassuring to see how quickly cases are coming down here in you know, Los Angeles County and also in the state of California. Um, it's very similar, actually, to what we've seen in other settings where um, you know, the Omicron variant surged quite rapidly and um, cases were quite high. And then it was followed by a very, very steep decline in cases. And we're in that decline now. So it's reassuring. Um, and so I'm hoping that that trend continues and we see fewer cases in the next coming uh, weeks here. You know how divisive the mask policy issue is. And you have people pointing to the Super Bowl and the NFC Championship at SoFi two weeks prior to that, and few people wearing masks, and even public officials who are touting the importance of pandemic rules that include mask wearing, not wearing their masks. So here we are with the announcement from Dr. Mark Golly of the state. Department of Public Health yesterday that uh, we'll go through the end of February with the mask requirement for California public schools. Um, your thoughts about us continuing to require that in schools, even as uh, adults are often in public settings not wearing their masks? Yeah, I, th I think it's hard. I think, you know, in schools where um, um, the masking requirements are still in place, um, I think schools are in a tough position because we obviously want to keep in-person learning um, as long as we can. And, and masks are definitely a way that we can help protect um, uh, kids and prevent transmission happening in schools. Um, and I also think that um, vaccinations are, you know, play an important role. And we actually here in L.A. County um, have decent um, vaccination coverage among adults. Um, you know, when vaccines provide protection against severe disease and deaths and even infections. Um, but our our numbers for vaccination for um, kids are not quite as high. And obviously, kids less than five are um, not able to get the vaccine yet. So I think in the setting of those, um, you know, it seems that the county health departments still want to um, promote masking in, in order to reduce transmission among um, kids. 
And does that make sense to you, given that the the youngest ones can't be vaccinated? Or do you think as Omicron is in retreat with its very high um, contagiousness, is this something that we don't necessarily have to worry about pending the arrival of another variant? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say. I'm not sure I have the, the right answer there. Um, you know, I think it's important to remember that cases are coming down quite rapidly, um, and that's great. But we're also at there's still pretty high community transmission. We're, you know, at higher levels than we were. You know, the last time we were at these levels was during our winter surge of last year. Um, and so I think I would feel a little bit more comfortable removing mask mandates, um, you know, if transmission continues to decline, as we hope it will. Um, and also, I think as, if we can get our vaccination rates among school-age children um, to higher levels, I think both of those things would would make me feel a little bit more comfortable with with removing the the masking uh, indoor masking for for kids in school. We're talking with UCLA School of Medicine professor and infectious disease specialist Dr. Paul Adamson. It's a chance for you to ask questions of him about COVID nineteen, about the pandemic protocols that we have in effect. To ask him about vaccination. 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. One of the things that vaccine makers are working on is a universal coronavirus vaccine that would provide coverage regardless of what spike proteins were presented by a particular variant of coronavirus. And your thoughts about the potential for uh, a pan-coronavirus vaccine, is, is, that a, is that something that you could see being developed within the next year or so? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. I, you know, the universal vaccines against, um, uh, well, there's a, there's a few different um, kind of distinctions we make when we talk about universal vaccines. There's a universal vaccine. I think some people are talking about COVID where that would really be, you know, uh, that would provide protection across many variants. Um, and there's also universal vaccines against um, uh, like SARS-like viruses, basically, that provide protection against not only SARS-CoV-2, the uh, virus that causes COVID-19, but also these other viruses, you know, that cause the common cold or um, the SARS outbreak we had, um, you know, early in the 2000s, um, as well as protection against other uh, viruses that tend to um, uh, be in bats that actually are, are at high risk for spillover to humans and causing, you know, epidemics or, or even pandemics. So there's a few different definitions there. Um, I know that the, there's a few research groups looking into universal vaccines um, for, for COVID-19, and I think these are really exciting. Um, and there are potentially ways that, um, you know, could provide protection against, um, you know, multiple different variants such that we don't have to keep trying to chase um, variants and make vaccines for each new variant, which I don't think is a strategy that um, is probably going to be uh, useful for the future. Um, as to the question of whether or not they're going to be available in the next year, it's really tough to say. I mean, it was really quite incredible that we had the vaccines that we had in, in such the short amount of time that um, that we had them. And, you know, that was really exciting, but I don't think that's the norm for vaccine development. Yeah. Uh, 
So I think there's probably going to be some time. I know they're in clinical trials now. There'll probably be some time before we see that data and we'll have to move. If, you know, everything looks good, they'll have to move forward with um, additional clinical trials. And it might take, you know, a couple of years if everything works well, is my guess. I, I was just wondering, you know, whether a strong case could be made for an Operation Warp Speed to develop that universal SARS-CoV-2 vaccine because of the fact we saw with Omicron how you can get a variant that is far more contagious than the ones that preceded it. And if you had one that was also um, leading to much more serious uh, you know, symptoms than Omicron did, you, you could just have a devastating combination. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're, you're right there. Um, that, you know, not, not to say that we got lucky with Omicron, but, you know, we were lucky with Omicron in the sense that, like you said, it wasn't as severe as, you know, Delta per chance. So if you think of a virus that, or a variant that might come in the future, that is, you know, not only more um, infectious and is, able to infect more people, but it also causes more severe disease. And, you know, that's really a, a, a double whammy. Yeah. Yeah. I think having vaccines that can protect against that um, in the future would be would be great. We're at 866-893-KPCC or email us your question for Dr. Paul Adamson of the Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA, comments at kpcc.org, and please include your location and first name. Susan in Santa Monica says, I'm really in the dark with how to stay safe with COVID and dating. I'm ready to get out there again, but how do people stay safe and become sexual again? I know there's a lot of us who are navigating this. Boy, yeah, that's a great question. It's actually a question that I've um, encountered a lot um, clinically as well with my patients having these discussions about, um, you know, dating or having sex um, with in the setting of this COVID-19 pandemic. And um, you know, I think there's a, there's ways that, um, you know, safer ways to approach this, um, like with anything we've seen with the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, getting vaccinated, getting boosted are sort of the first things I recommend. Um, you know, if somebody doesn't feel as comfortable being around people in a close um, space, um, there's, you know, outdoor dates that are, are possible. There's ways to meet people outside outdoor settings, which are less risk. Um, there's also the ability for people to take um, uh, to use antigen tests in a way that you know can you know identify infections that or infections that might be contagious. They can help people make decisions about um, what activities they might want to engage in, uh, knowing if somebody is at least negative on an antigen test and vaccinated and everything else. So it's a very difficult thing to navigate, um, but there are ways to reduce risk and sort of engage in activities that might be. Um, uh, of interest for, for folks. Yeah, and I'm just thinking of the complexity. So let's say you get together for a cup of coffee or, or you have a lunch or, or dinner date with someone and, you know, maybe you're in that environment, you're, you're eating or drinking outside, you're not thinking about you know, you're the person you're you're meeting with having a negative COVID test. But then if you're going to go to the next step, you're going to be um, intimate with the person and wanting a test. How do you bring that up in a way that, you know, that doesn't telegraph intent necessarily because you may or may not want to telegraph that through the request of a test? That's I could just see that being a tricky thing to do. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. It's, it's sometimes hard to navigate these um, conversations. Um, I think normalizing testing is, is okay. And maybe having that conversation up front to sort of, you know, not anticipate anything, but also have a understanding between the two people, kind of what their risk tolerance might be and, you know, what um, tests they've done recently. Um, you know, we, we do this with, um, you know, sexually transmitted infections as well. Some people get tested, um, you know, on a regular basis and, and will show negative tests to, um, you know, partners on dates and things like that. Um, and so it is something. Good that we- point. Yeah, this already is going on in, in many cases. That's that's true. We're talking with Dr. Paul Adamson, infectious disease specialist and assistant clinical professor at the Geffen School of Medicine and at UCLA. And if you're someone who has been um, intimate dating with with people, uh, not necessarily with the same person for a long period of time, but, you know, um, maybe you can share with us what worked for you in feeling safe in um, being sexual with someone um not in your household and how you navigated that whether testing was something you agreed on or 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 how you worked through that 866-893-KPCC David in Azusa says I'm 64 and a healthcare worker I've read boosters are losing their effectiveness after about 3 months I also wondering if I qualify to get another booster um, I had my most recent one 4 months ago David this is such a good question we've gotten it almost daily uh lately and, you know, first of all, what do we know about the effectiveness of the booster vaccines, about their duration? Because we see that there's a significant antibody response drop. But does that mean that after, say, three months, the boosters are largely ineffective? Right. I, I, I agree. I think that we, we have seen um, the boosters make strong antibody responses and the antibody responses are really most helpful for preventing uh, any infections. And we know that they're very um, effective at that. But as we've seen time and time and again with the COVID-19 vaccinations, but also vaccinations and um, immunity in general, the um, antibody response wanes over time. And that's sort of your normal um, immune response, because otherwise your immune system would be kind of chock full of proteins and, you know, you wouldn't have any room for your for your blood cells. So this happens over time and it's natural. So we do expect there to be some um, waning of immunity um, of antibodies over time following a, um, a booster. The question is whether or not that booster still um, provides protection and, and if so, how much protection and how long that protection might last. Um, and I think that we're, you know, we're always kind of a little bit behind in learning these things. There's, um, you know, obviously we know that it, the booster provided a lot of protection against severe disease and um, hospitalization. But the question of how long it lasts, and we, I don't think we know that just yet. Um, and so that's kind of the, the next step is learning how long that lasts and to make a decision about, um, you know, when an additional dose is going to be needed for um, folks. And I think Israel, didn't they, with older residents, um, suggest that there be a, a, a fourth dose, in other words, a second booster? But I don't know what kind of results they've shown from that. Yeah, it's a good question. I know that they recommended that um, sort of earlier on in the Omicron surge. Um, but I have not come across any of that data to say how long that immune response was expected to last. 
Um, you know, and I, and I do think it kind of shows a larger question here that, um, you know, the booster strategy is important for, you know, in the midst of when, you know, cases are really high and you're preventing a surge. Um, but the vac- the vaccines actually have worked really well against severe um, hospitalization and deaths. And so there's no reason to think they won't work again. It's just this question of how long um, they last. And I think this is something we're going to learn as, you know, coronavirus continues to go on, um, kind of how long we need to get um, uh, additional doses of vaccines. I'm going to combine two listener questions here. Nylon in Redondo Beach asks, are we starting to see new strains uh, of the virus or is Omicron still the latest? Because uh, he hasn't heard of any additional ones. And then Grace in Culver City asks about this substrain BA2, uh, what's sometimes called stealth Omicron. And so she's wondering about easing mask restrictions, if we should be concerned about BA2. Uh, I mean, Grace, one good thing is, you know, if you look at Omicron, that took off like wildfire in numerous countries and around the world. It grew so fast. And the good thing is that we've seen BA2 around, I don't know how many weeks, Dr. Adamson, but but for a while now, and we certainly haven't seen that kind of wildfire spread. Now, what what is your level of concern with that subvariant? Yeah, so the the BA two variant, um, like you mentioned, is is seems very closely related to the Omicron variant. It has a few other mutations in it that make it um, kind of its distinct uh, sub lineage of of Omicron, um, and it is a variant of concern that the WHO is watching very closely. Um, it's sort of interesting because in some areas, um, uh, you know, I know that the the Danish folks have seen a lot of um, BA2. It really took off there and basically displaced the the original Omicron um, variant. Um, and it does look like maybe it's more infectious uh, than Omicron, but it doesn't seem that it's any um, kind of clinically different in terms of causing more disease or more um, severe disease. So it's kind of hard to know. Uh, exactly what to make of it now, other than that we're watching it very closely. And in the U.S., it doesn't seem that it's um, causing a whole lot of infections here just yet. Um, you know, obviously the the surveillance that we're doing, um, you know, we're getting updates frequently, but, um, you know, there is a little bit of a lag there because it takes time to um, grow the virus and uh, to genotype it and figure out exactly what family it falls into. But it seems like our, um, you know, it's still mostly kind of original Omicron variant here in the U.S. right now. Um, doesn't seem that the BA2 variant's really taken off. All right. Uh, Richard in West Hollywood emailed us, in the 90s, the GLBT Center had a program called Lifeguard, where volunteers ran workshops to teach people about how to have conversations about having safer sex um, around HIV. Those same skills are important now, as people need to learn ways to talk with potential partners about having safer sex around COVID. Richard, I, I thank you for that. A very good point. And Larry in Huntington Beach emailed us, These tests are useful beyond dating. In my business office, I keep a supply of rapid tests. When I have a visitor who's going to spend time meeting in my office, I test both of us with both observing tests and results real time to provide mutual comfort. Larry, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I appreciate that. 866 893 
kpecc or email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Dr. Adamson, can we talk a little bit about the, the mask rules in California and L.A. County? Because I think some of us are confused about the criteria for L.A. County to lift mask rules and how close we are to doing the lifting the indoor mask mandate in L.A. County based on our current hospitalizations and, and case rates. Can you enlighten us a bit on that? Uh, I can I can try. It's it is a little bit confusing. I think um, there's different tiers at which case different um, masking, um, I guess, recommendations or I guess requirements are there. Um, and so for kind of the, the 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 one that we're nearest to is to have um, COVID hospitalizations drop below um, uh, 2,500 in LA County for seven consecutive days. I think basically we crossed that threshold last Wednesday. So I think um, later this week, Wednesday um, at the earliest will be um, below that level for seven consecutive days. And then that would allow, that would remove the rest, the masking requirement for um, outdoor spaces and large events, um, as well as outdoor spaces for, for um, K through 12 uh, school kids, um, I believe. And then the, the, the other requirement, which is where LA County sort of differs from the state, is looking at um, case rates over the past week. And so that is, you know, the moderate transmission is what they call it. And the CDC has that definition of about 10 to 15 cases per 100,000 people over a week. So in LA, with about 10 million people, we're looking at about, um, you know, 50,000 cases in a week, which is like 7,100 ish a day. Um, for a two-week period, um, so really looking at like less than 100,000 over a two-week period, um, and I, you know, we're we're not there yet. We're still having about 5,000 or so cases a day over the past week, um, so we're, we're not quite there for the moderate transmission um, category. The other part of the moderate transmission for the CDC definition is for test positivity to be less than eight percent, and we're quite low in terms of test positivity now, around three and a half percent. So we've reached that threshold, but the sort of case per 100,000, I think, is going to be a little while longer before we are there just yet. We're talking with Dr. Paul Adamson, UCLA School of Medicine professor and infectious disease specialist. Final question comes from Deborah in Long Beach, who emailed us, deaths have remained very high. Therefore, why is Omicron thought to be so less severe than previous variants? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think initially we, some of the data we initially saw from Omicron was it looked less severe, but it's also um, different in the sense that this variant came at a time when more people were immunized, whether through infections or through um, vaccinations. And so I think initially it, it appeared to be much less um, severe, but it is not that much less severe for people who are unvaccinated. And so um, most of the hospitalizations and, and deaths that we are seeing are from people who are um, unvaccinated. Um, and I think that Omicron proved to be just as severe, uh, unfortunately, for those folks. And so just a reminder for people out there to you know, get vaccinated, um, get boosted if you're eligible. Um, and it's, those are all really going to help us drive down um, uh, cases and transmission and get us to a better spot where we can hopefully start lifting these mask mandates um, uh, sometime soon. Dr. Adamson, thanks so much for being with us again. As always, we really appreciate it and our best to you and your colleagues at the Gaffin School of Medicine. Thank you so much, Larry. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.